Welcome to the March of History, episode 32. I'm your host, Trevor Furness, recording this episode in the sunny city of Huelva in southern Spain. We ended episode 31 with Caesar ending the talks early with Ariovistus after German troops had started throwing spears and rocks at the Roman cavalry troops, and Ariovistus then sent messengers asking for a second meeting or for Caesar to at least send envoys to meet with him again. Caesar had no intention of meeting since he felt that there was no way to stop the Germans from attacking a second time. And he was hesitant to send envoys because he felt that it could be a trap. So he sends his personal friend, a Roman citizen of Gallic descent, along with a friend of Ariovistus in the hopes that this would warm him up. But Ariovistus promptly claps them both in chains and claims that they are spies. And I was thinking about this whole scene again after recording last episode. And it occurred to me that, yes, as I said in the last episode, there's this debate, or at least in my mind there's this debate, as to whether Caesar sent the two men as envoys or spies. The primary sources don't really discuss this too much. This is more my reading. But another potential reading of this scenario that I thought of after recording is that It's possible Caesar did send these two men as envoys after declining a second meeting and showing great concern in the commentaries that any envoys sent would be sent into a trap. And in hindsight, Caesar was 100% correct. Both men were immediately seized, as he had feared, under the pretense that they were spies and locked in chains. So you could say Caesar was right to decline the second invitation for a meeting from Ariovistus. In fact, it's even possible that Ariovistus had been planning an ambush in the first meeting, and this is why his troops started throwing spears and rocks. Maybe they were supposed to wait for a certain signal, and and a few of them went too early, which kind of gave away the trap. And it's possible that Caesar pulled out so quickly once he heard that they were throwing spears and rocks and and galloped away so quickly that Ariovistus' plan simply didn't have time to even happen. We don't know for sure, and all this is purely speculation on my part. But it just occurred to me that you know there was an alternate analysis or alternate reading of that scenario that maybe Caesar did send envoys, maybe they weren't spies, and maybe Ariovistus had been planning a trap the entire time, in which case Caesar's instincts for human psychology served him very well, and he did not trust Ariovistus, and for good reason. But moving on to episode 32... The same day Ariovistus locks up those envoys or spies, take your pick, he also breaks camp and moves his army closer to Caesar's camp. And the new German camp is about five and a half Roman miles away from the Roman camp, at the foot of a mountain, so a a strong position. But for the time being, Caesar keeps the Roman army put. And the next day, Ariovistus again moves his Germans. This time he moves them another two Roman miles to behind the Roman camp to cut off Caesar's supply lines. And this, it's a very sophisticated tactic, right? And these Germans get a bad reputation as barbarians, as being overly aggressive and not too sophisticated. But we can see Ariovistus using a very sophisticated tactic. He's moved his army twice to strong positions. He's cut off Caesar's supply lines and he's looking to strangle his army by just cutting off their supply lines and cutting off their ability to feed themselves. These are not stupid tactics. These are the tactics of an intelligent military commander. 
And it's, it's kind of weird here because during these two days of movement where Ariovistus has been moving his troops and cutting off Caesar's supply lines, Caesar has been uncharacteristically still. He hasn't moved his camp or attempted to engage in battle at all, and it's possible that he still thought that war could be avoided. We, we don't know. Maybe this is why he sat still, because he wasn't sure what Ariovistus was up to. But if this was the case, cutting off Caesar's supply lines, of course, put an end to any possibilities for peace. This was an act of aggression. It was an act of war. And after Ariovistus does this, after he cuts off the Roman supply lines, Caesar moves quickly to take back the initiative, because the initiative in war is extremely important, and Caesar's, of course, aware of this as one of the greatest commanders of all time. You want the enemy reacting to you. You don't want to be reacting to the enemy. And some people, as I've said in the past, make the case that Caesar wanted war all along. Others say he was looking to avoid war. Caesar himself says he was looking to avoid war. Regardless of if he wanted war or not, he was not afraid of the fight, and he was not afraid of the Germans. And starting this very same day that Ariovistus makes this move to cut off Caesar's supply lines, Caesar personally leads out his legions to the open field to confront the Germans. He lines them up in battle formation in front of the German camp, and the Germans refuse to come out of the camp to engage. They refuse to fight the Romans. And Caesar does this for five days straight. For five days straight, he leads out his legions personally. He lines them up in battle formation on the open field in what would be neutral ground where the Germans could feel comfortable coming out and fighting him, and they don't. They refuse to. And this was an ancient battle strategy. This is not unique to Caesar. If you felt your army was the stronger army, you would line up your troops in battle formation on neutral ground. And by neutral ground, what I mean is that if you line up your troops at the top of a hill, of course, it doesn't encourage the enemy to attack you because you have much, uh, much stronger position than they do. But if you line up in a flat field where both armies would be on flat ground and neither would have an advantage of terrain, that's what I mean by neutral ground. So it was, it was an ancient tactic to take your troops, line them up in battle formation on neutral ground, and wait for your enemy to do the same. And lining up like this boosts the confidence of your troops because it shows them that their commander has faith that they will win this battle. And if the enemy doesn't respond in kind, if they don't lead their troops out and allow them to go to battle, well, then of course they must be afraid, right? And this boosts your troops' morale even more. The fact that, hey, our commander has so much faith in us, he's leading us out to fight the enemy, and the enemy won't come to fight us on neutral ground. And this harms the morale and the confidence of the enemy because they begin to wonder why their commander won't deploy them if they are indeed the stronger force, which they've likely been told. I mean, I think every army in history is told that they are the stronger force, that they are the better trained force, that God or the gods are on their side and that victory will surely be theirs. So they're being told all these things like any army and their commander won't lead them out to fight in a neutral position. So why not? Does the commander really have faith in us? Have we been told a bunch of lies? Are we actually weaker than we think? It begins to play with their head. Alternatively, sometimes the enemy gets shamed into deploying for the battle despite being weaker. In other words, their commander sees that the enemy is deployed on neutral territory and they have built themselves up to be this great commander. They have built their troops up to be the greatest force. And in the back of their mind, they may know, 
hey, we are not as strong as the enemy, but they can't admit this themselves. They can't admit this to their troops. It would be very shameful. So they go out to fight the battle anyway, and they're now forced to fight a battle where they are at a disadvantage. Rather than waiting for the tide to turn and define territory or some kind of circumstances that would put them at a better advantage. Now, of these two choices, Ariovistus chooses the former. During these five days that Caesar leads his troops out, he refuses to lead his Germans out in kind, and he refuses to face Caesar and legions. Instead, he keeps his army safely in their camp. And Caesar, for his part, doesn't attack the German camp either, which probably means that they had a strong position, the Germans, if Caesar wasn't going to attack their camp, but was willing to fight them on neutral ground. But, Ariovistus during these five days does send out his 6,000 cavalry to do battle with the Roman cavalry, which, don't forget, are really Gallic cavalry. And this leads me to a point on the German cavalry, because they fought in a very, very unique way. Or at the very least, the Germans that Ariovistus had with him did. And, and in case you were wondering which tribes Ariovistus had with him, I'm going to do my best to pronounce them. They are as follows. The Haruds, the Macromani, the Tribuses, the Vangiones, the Nemetes, the Seduci, and finally the Swaybi, which is Ariovistus' own tribe. Now, the cavalry troops, the cavalry soldiers from each of these tribes, each one of them chooses a fast and brave foot soldier from the infantry. So really, when Caesar says that they had 6,000 cavalry units, they actually had 12,000 soldiers because each cavalry soldier would be accompanied by a corresponding infantry unit. And these infantry soldiers actually acted as protection for the cavalry. In battles, they worked in tandem. If the cavalry was in trouble, they would fall back to the massed infantry. And if a cavalry soldier got wounded or knocked off his horse, the infantry would jump in to protect him until he got either pulled to safety, got back on his horse and back into the battle, whatever the case may be. And if the cavalry force needed to move fast or retreat, the infantry would grab the horse's manes and keep up with the horse's speed, which is pretty amazing, right? And Caesar attributes this ability, this ability to keep up with the horses to their speed and training. And I do wonder how this would work if the infantry would grab onto their manes and kind of hang there as the cavalry soldier rode on the horse, and maybe for short distances, they would kind of just hang on the side of the horse, off the mane, and ride it that way. Or if it was more, they were holding onto the mane and kind of running at the same time, and the horse was pulling them along at a, at a faster pace than they could run if they weren't holding onto the horse too. I don't know, but the ancient world had many unique ways of doing things, and these Germans had a very unique way of using cavalry. But despite these cavalry skirmishes, Caesar's not fooled or distracted by them. He fully realizes that Ariovistus does not want an all-out battle, at least not yet. And the big question is, why? Was he afraid of the fight? Was he just buying time? Was he waiting for reinforcements to come his way? We know that there's a huge force of Germans coming over the Rhine or, or working their way over the Rhine, so maybe he's buying time until they come. Maybe he's buying time until he can cut off Caesar's supplies for long enough until he can starve the Roman army. But at this point, it's unclear to Caesar why Ariovistus is behaving this way. But Caesar is determined to find out. And many commanders would have just assumed that fear was the answer and plunged ahead. No more thinking involved. But Caesar, for his part, 
wants to know the definite why behind their behavior. He's always concerned with the psychology of the enemy, and he wants to know why they make the decisions they make, not just that they made them. And as for starving the Romans out, don't forget, Ariovistus still has the Roman supply lines cut off. And Caesar certainly hasn't forgotten this. Each day his soldiers eat through tons of food, and they need to be fed constantly. So Caesar's in a bit of a bind here, again with the supplies, and he needs a plan. He needs a plan and he needs intelligence. He needs a plan to get his supply lines back in his own hands, and he needs intelligence to figure out why the Germans are behaving this way. And it may take time to gather this intelligence, but in the meantime a plan can still be made. So Caesar gets down to work on this. It's very clear to him now that, for whatever reason, the Germans are refusing to come out of their camp and fight. So seeing as a pitched battle is out for the time being, the next objective is to get his supply lines back in order. So he decides to make a second Roman camp and divide his forces. And the second camp he makes, or, or decides that he's going to make it, about 600 paces which is about 457 meters or 500 yards further towards his supply lines than the Germans' new camp is. So the camp of the Germans is at one spot blocking the supply lines. Caesar decides to make a second Roman camp 500 yards closer to his supply lines than the Germans are. So he marches his legions to this new location in a triple line formation. And he doesn't say in the commentaries, but he must have left a sizable contingent at the first camp to hold it while he's gone. Now the first two lines, Caesar orders to stand guard and be ready to fight. And the third line, Caesar sets to constructing the defensive structures for the camp. And Roman camps are fascinating. And I think after this year in Gaul, once it's finished, we may spend a few episodes on the Roman military, Roman military camps, how Caesar ran his army during wartime and during the winters, and what Caesar spent his winters doing. So get ready for that once this year and our story is over. And at this point, it's clear to Ariovistus that Caesar is up to something. He sees the Romans coming out of their barracks, out of their camp as they usually do, but rather than lining up for battle, they're all marching past his camp to some location about 500 yards away from his camp and digging. So they're up to something. So what he does is he sends out 16,000 of his soldiers to attack the legions together with his cavalry. So Caesar already mentioned that the Germans had about 6,000 cavalry units, which actually amounted to 12,000 men, since each unit of cavalry has two men. So in total, Ariovistus sends out 28,000 Germans to attack the Romans, 6,000 of them on horseback. And you can imagine that 6,000 horses with men on them and another 22,000 infantry running towards you would shake the very ground you stand on. And that had to be an imposing sight and feeling for the Romans, you know, the actual ground shaking as you stand there and watch these horses and these men run towards you. But Caesar doesn't panic. He's planned for this. He orders the first two lines to prepare for battle, as he had done originally, and he orders the third line to keep digging. And I have to imagine that no men in history have built a camp faster than these guys. With the threat of annihilation hanging over their heads and 28,000 Germans descending on their position, 
trying desperately to get through the first two lines and attack them while they're unprepared, meaning that this third line is not, not in battle formation, they don't have their weapons at hand, they're using shovels, they're constructing walls for the fort, and knowing that their friends are fighting and dying to buy them time. I just imagine if ever a construction crew had motivation to work quickly, it was this crew. And we don't know for sure, but it seemed that the German attack was likely a series of feints and probes rather than an all-out assault on the Roman forces. And the Romans, if they were using all six of their legions and auxiliary forces and cavalry and light troops, would have at least equaled the Germans in numbers. And the first two lines of the Romans, they held strong and they did their duty and they fended off the German cavalry. And the third line was able to finish the new camp as this battle raged right in front of them, which talk about working under pressure. Once the fortifications for the camp were complete, Caesar left two legions and a portion of the auxiliaries in the camp to defend it. At this point, it seems the Germans had given up and seen the camp was already completed and they had gone back to their camp. So Caesar took his other four legions and he takes them back to his main original camp. And remember, the whole point of the second camp is to reestablish his supply lines. So he's done that. He now has an uninterrupted supply line where this smaller camp can receive supplies and presumably transport to the larger camp as well. So he's not worried about his troops starving anymore, and he's not worried about slowly being strangled by Ariovistus. So he goes back to his original tactic of shaming the Germans into war. And the very next day after building this smaller camp, he leads his soldiers out of both camps and lines them up again. Again, giving the Germans a chance to fight on equal footing. Yet again, the Germans stay in their camp and won't engage. So at noon, Caesar calls his troops back into their camp. Of course, he doesn't want them standing there all day in full armor in the hot sun getting hot and tired. But later that day, Ariovistus finally does make a move. He sends out his forces to attack the smaller of the two Roman camps, and the fighting was fierce and lasts into the night, until finally the Romans prevail and the Germans retreat back to their camp, but not before both sides were bloodied by the fighting. And then Caesar finally gets his intelligence victory. He finally figures out why the Germans have been refusing to engage in a pitched battle. In personally questioning some prisoners, presumably prisoners taken during the attack on the smaller camp that just happened, he finds out that it was for religious reasons that the Germans weren't fighting. You see, the Germans had a religious custom. The old women of the tribe would discover the will of the gods through divination and through drawing lots. They would then interpret these signs to let the king know if war should be favorable for the Germans or not. And up until now, the omens had not been favorable. Specifically, the women had said that it was not heaven's will that the Germans should win if they engaged in battle before the new moon. And yes, Ariovistus had engaged in a few cavalry battles, but these had been small, minor skirmishes. These were not big pitched battles. And so, as you can see, this is the reason why Ariovistus is holding back from fighting Caesar in a pitched battle. It's not fear well, I mean, it could be fear, I guess. It, it, it's for these religious reasons, because he doesn't think that he will win, and his men don't think that they can win if they fight before the new moon. 
So in, in a way, I guess it is fear, but it, it's more than just fear of pain or fear of loss. It's fear of the wrath of the gods. And this whole thing kind of reminds me of our friend Clodius's ancestor. Remember the guy with the sacred chickens who threw them overboard and said, if they won't eat, let them drink. But at this point, Ariovistus has not yet thrown the sacred chickens overboard. He's still obeying these sacred women in their tribe, and he's trying to avoid a pitched battle until after the new moon. And just a side note here, despite the fact that Caesar is Pontifex Maximus, he was not often constrained by religion. In fact, our primary source, Suetonius, even goes as far as to say, quote, religious scruples never deterred him for a moment, end quote which I just think is an interesting glimpse into his character, despite the fact that he's the head priest of Rome and that religion is such an important part of the Roman fabric and, and Roman government. It's, it's, it's tied into everything. Caesar was not a religious person himself and didn't often let religious things stand in his way. And just an example, during his time in Gaul, it was a big part of the Roman army to also do sacrifices and to figure out if the gods would be on their side before battle as well. Like the example of Clodius' ancestor with the sacred chickens. Yet Caesar never in the commentaries, as far as I know, never makes a single mention of this. Which is interesting because it would have been a huge part of the Roman life. But it seems that Caesar didn't put much stock behind these things. Yes, he knew that the soldiers needed them to feel good, to feel confident. But he didn't put any stock by them himself as the commander. But back to our narrative, Caesar finally has his intelligence. And he finally understands the reasons behind his enemy's behavior. And he understands what their motivations are. And for a master of human psychology, especially the psychology of soldiers, this is as good as gold for Caesar. With this information, he can manipulate Ariovistus and manipulate his German soldiers at will. And that is where we will end today's episode. And make sure you tune in next episode when Caesar puts this intelligence to work and finally draws Ariovistus into a full-pitched battle. But before we go, let me just say our Instagram is at the March of History. Give us a follow on that. Our Twitter is at March underscore History. Our Facebook page is the March of History, if you just search that. If you want to send us an email with some feedback, it's themarchofhistory at gmail.com. Please, if you enjoy the podcast, leave us a review in the podcast store. And also don't forget to share the podcast with others who are big fans of history or Roman history or any kind of history. And you think that they would enjoy a podcast like this. Or people that are just looking to examine the lives of figures throughout history and, and figure out what made them great and try to emulate it. Also, make sure to subscribe to the podcast so you get notifications on new episodes. And that is all. Thank you for listening. Ooh, one last thing, let me just say, I think that after this year and our story ends, after this year in Gaul ends, Brendan may be back on the podcast and we may do an episode about some of the historical travels I've done in Spain, so I think that's when we're going to fit that in, because I, I've been wanting to do this for a while, but I didn't want to just jam in an episode like that into the midst of this confrontation with Ariovistus. I thought it would kind of ruin the flow. So I think after this year in Gaul, Brendan and I may sit down and talk about that and I'll tell you about what's been happening here in Spain, what life's been like, what the history is like here, 
and all the different Roman history and, and just various other types of history I've seen here. I think that that would be interesting, and if you don't find it interesting, you can feel free to skip it, and you can just go to the next episode with Caesar in it, but I think it'll be a good one. Well, that's really it this time, so thank you for listening, and we'll see you next episode.